The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To worship God by hearing from His Word. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at one verse in particular. And this is going to continue our mini-series, a topical series on worship. The things that we do in our gathering. Why do we do them? Why do we do them the way they do? What's acceptable worship? Uh, which God calls us to. In Hebrews 12, 28, God says, offer up to Him not only worship, but acceptable worship. What is that? And so that's what we've been looking at. And we're in the section on uh, the ordinances, sometimes we refer to as sacraments, baptism and Lord's Supper. And we're looking at baptism. We started last week, and we're going to finish uh, with the sermon today. And we were considering two questions as it pertains to baptism. Okay, two questions as it pertains to baptism. The first is, what is it? And the second is, what does it do? And last week, we began to answer the question, what is baptism? And there's three aspects to that. First, it's a sign. God gives us a sign. Second, it's an entrance. And uh, we see that it's how one visibly enters into uh service in the temple, the priesthood. That's why it's, it's done once at the beginning. And the third is that it's an appeal. We didn't cover that last week. We're going to cover that today. The third thing that baptism is, is that it's an appeal to God. That's going to segue us then into the second question, which is, what does it do? So that's what we're covering today. We're, we're finishing up the question, what is baptism? Is an appeal. And then we move on to the next question, what does it do? So, what is baptism? It's an appeal. 1 Peter 3.21. Look at verse 21 of 1 Peter 3 with me. 1 Peter 3.21 says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you were in Sunday school, this is going to sound very familiar to you. We are covering some of this. But when Peter says here, baptism, which corresponds to this, since we're just jumping into the middle of the verse, that needs to be answered. Corresponds to what? Well, what he just got done talking about in the previous verse about Noah's flood, Noah being in the ark, safely passing through these judgment waters, God flooding the whole earth because of sin. But Noah and his family being in the ark safely passed through it and were saved. And Peter says, baptism corresponds to this. Because baptism is a sign that we have passed safely uh, from death to life by being in Christ. Just as Noah was in the ark, we who are in Christ are kept safe from God's judgment. But then Peter goes on to say that baptism now saves you. Now, if I was to go around, and I said this this morning in Sunday school, if I was to go around to you and say, baptism now saves you, what would you say to me? You'd be like, you're fired, <laughs> right? And then you should, you should say that, but what if I said to you, I'm just quoting scripture? And you would look down and you would say, huh, you are quoting scripture. But you would probably rush to say, not as a removal of dirt from the body. And that would be correct. Baptism doesn't save by just getting dunked. 
Uh, baptism doesn't save by getting water on you. Okay, so somebody can go to heaven without getting baptized. Right? If you have trusted in Christ and Christ alone, you are saved. And let's say you're about ready to get baptized and you're driving to a church service that day and you get in a car accident and you die before getting baptized. You would be going to heaven if you've trusted in Christ, okay? It's not the removal of dirt from the body. But then how do we explain why Peter says here, baptism now saves you? It's the only thing we conclude from this, baptism does not save you. The meaning of baptism now saves you is this. This is how you interpret Peter's words, baptism now saves you. Baptism does not save you. That's how we interpret those words. Say, uh, yeah, that's kind of, that is kind of contradictory, isn't it? So what's he saying here? Well, Peter is saying baptism now saves you, not in this way, removal of dirt from the body, but rather in this way, as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter is positively, and making a positive statement here, positively affirming that baptism now saves you. And he says it saves you in this way, as an appeal to God. So if we want to understand what Peter's saying here, being faithful to Scripture, we need to understand what he means by an appeal here. So let's explore this and let's consider it. What does he mean by an appeal to God? And uh, as we talk about in Sunday school, this is where we run into a lot of difficulty. Because this word appeal, this Greek word appeal, can mean a wide range of things. And this is going to be reflected in some of your translations. The NAS and ESV has the word appeal. If you're using the NIV, it has the word pledge. If you're using a King James Version or New King James Version, it has answer. And so that just reflects that this word does have a wide range of meaning. Uh, appeal, this, this Greek word can refer to a pledge, make an illegal binding vow. <clears throat> it can refer to answer and uh, to a question. It could even refer to a question where you're expecting an answer. And so it has a wide range of meaning. And here's why I believe the best translation is an appeal to God. I believe this is the way it should be translated. You are appealing to God, or you could say asking God for something. And here's why I think this. First, we look at where else this word is used in the Greek language outside the Bible. And the reason we do that is because this is the only time this Greek word is used in the Bible. This word translated as appeal in the ESV, it's the only time it's used. So we can't look at other scripture passages where this word is used. So the next thing we do is we look at how did the Greeks, during this time the Bible is written, how did they conceive of this word? That's the best way to do it when we don't have other scripture passages that use this word. And the way they conceived of it most commonly was an appeal, was a request to a divine. Uh, even prayer is the way this can be translated. Second, this needs to be understood in light of Peter saying that this saves us. Does a commitment or a vow save you? No, it doesn't. Does asking God, calling out to Him, save? Well, 
in the sense that Jesus says your faith saves you, it does. Faith itself doesn't save, it's the instrument through which uh, God responds. And this ties to the, the, the third reason I believe this is an appeal, which is this. It's related to the other place in Scripture where both baptism and speaking to God are put together. And that's Acts 22.16. And I have you turn there now. Keep a finger in 1 Peter 3 and turn to Acts 22.16. We looked at this last week, but I want us to look at this again. Acts 22.16. So this is uh, Peter giving a testimony about how God saved him, essentially. And he is quoting Ananias, who spoke to uh, to Paul on uh, behalf of God. So this is God speaking to Paul through Ananias, quoting God. And now, why do you wait? So speaking to Paul, Paul, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. So I want you to notice the tie between being baptized and calling on God's name. Scripture is associating those two here. To call on the name of the Lord is a request. It's an appeal to God. When you're calling on the name of the Lord, you're just not shouting His name out loud. Lord, you're just not doing that. Okay? There's a reason why you are. Rather, when you call on God's name, what are you doing? You're making an urgent plea, an appeal to God. You're making an appeal to God to save you. Hence, Romans 10 says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Calling on the name of the Lord is an expression of faith. And whoever does that, the Lord saves. Now, what is the tie between baptism and calling on the name of the Lord? Well, in our day, we don't make this tie anymore because we associate calling on God's name with, uh, I think, and maybe not so much anymore, but at least we used to with the sinner's prayer. Now, there's nothing wrong with the sinner's prayer as long as it's prayed genuinely. Sometimes uh, it can be forced, like, I want my children to be saved. Repeat after me. And, oh, they repeated after me, they're saved now. Not necessarily, but if they meant it, yes. Um, but I, I want you to notice how the Bible closely associates baptism with repentance and calling out on God's name. Acts 22.16, we saw calling on his name with being baptized. And then in Acts 2.38, we hear Peter say this, Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Some have gotten that confused, thinking, well, I'm not saved until I actually get baptized, until I go through water. Because it says repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. But what Scripture's doing is it's closely associating calling out on God's name through baptism. Now, it's not the case that you need water to call out on God's name. Let's just set that notion aside. Uh, we call out on God's name through prayer, right? If I am convicted of my sin and... The Lord's law has come to bear upon me in my conscience. 
And I have heard the gospel where it says God is a God who forgives your sin. And you can turn to Him and receive forgiveness. And right then and there, I call to God, Oh God, forgive me. Give me Christ. I trust what your Son did for me. You're saved and on your way to heaven. If it was genuine faith. It's not the case that you have to say, Okay, now I've said that. Now I need to hurry up and find water before I die so I can make it to heaven. That's not the case. But then why does Scripture closely associate baptism and calling out on God's name? Well, when you are calling out on God's name, you're asking Him to forgive you for your sins, to save you. And part of this is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Why is that? Well, a good conscience is a conscience that no longer condemns you. That doesn't mean it's not going to convict you when you do sin, but it doesn't condemn you as a guilty, unforgiven sinner. An evil conscience is what Scripture says when it says evil conscience. That is a conscience that condemns you as a guilty, evil sinner who's unforgiven. A good conscience says you are forgiven before God. God no longer condemns you. You see, your conscience, when you call it on God's name, is telling you that you are a filthy sinner deserving of God's judgment. You agree with His law. You have broken His law and you deserve the penalty. Your conscience is telling you that. Guilty, 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 condemned, condemned, condemned. This is how God has made your conscience to function. This is why He's given every image bearer a conscience. And they have to deal with it somehow. And it's one of the heaviest burdens that anyone can bear is an evil conscience. David expressed this in Psalm 32 where he, he says, God's hand weighed heavy on me day and night. I was being eaten up alive inside. I, my strength was, was sapped. It's in the summer heat. That describes someone who has a guilty conscience. And there's one of two ways to handle a guilty conscience. Yourself or go to God. If you do it yourself, you're going to justify yourself. You're going to be your own advocate. You're going to be doing, as Hebrews says, dead works. Hebrews says, the book of Hebrews, it's either 9 or 10. I think it's Hebrews 9 says that if you don't have a cleansed conscience, it's going to lead you to works, but dead works. Just trying to appease your guilty conscience so you don't stand condemned before God. But once your conscience is cleansed, then you serve God truly. The difference between dead works and tr serving God truly is whether or not your conscience is cleansed. cleansed. Conscience makes all the difference in the world. 2 Peter 1.9 tells us the reason we get stuck in sin is because we have forgotten that we have been cleansed. You may be objectively forgiven. So apart from how you feel, you may be objectively forgiven because the only way to have your sins washed away, to have them forgiven, is by the blood of Christ alone, and that's it objectively, before God. 
But while your sins may be objectively forgiven, subjectively, your experience, your feeling, what you believe, you may be carrying around the guilt of your sin. You may have a guilty, condemning conscience. You may say, God is angry at me. God is not happy with me. In fact, one of the questions that Pastor Doug asks in, when he counsels people is, how does God view you when you sin? And genuine believers will say, well, he's angry at me. I've got to do better. I, and once I do better, God won't be angry at me. Once I have a, a, a period of better righteousness, my own righteousness, God, God will then no longer be angry at me. You see, objectively, you can be forgiven, but because our faith is weak, subjectively, we can function as an unbeliever, carrying around our, our, our guilt. And that's going to lead to all sorts of sin. 2 Peter 1, 9 says, you're not going to grow when you have a guilty conscience, when you don't, even when you have forgotten that you have been cleansed from your sin. Also, this is why this is one of Satan's greatest weapons. What's, what's, how does Satan work? What's one of his greatest weapons against you? How does he attack? Some people say, you know, he goes bump in the night or he goes boom or, you know, something like that. You know that what the name Satan means, right? It means accuser. It, it means slanderer. He's called the accuser of the brethren. His very name is based on his greatest weapon, to accuse you. Why is that his greatest weapon? Because he knows if he can have you live in a guilty conscience, that you are going to function as a practical unbeliever. Not trusting that Christ has forgiven you. Living in sin. Bearing a great weight. Living with great anxiety. So forth and so on. So many things blow out of an evil conscience. To the, to the, the point that when Pastor Doug counsels somebody, a lot of times it's him giving them the gospel. And he, the way he describes believers when he does this is that they come to life. Now, it doesn't mean that they went from an unbeliever to a believer. In some cases, that's true. But they come to life in that now they have this power, this encouragement to, to walk in the freedom that, they, that was theirs all along in Christ by simply telling them the gospel. Because now their conscience is no longer condemning them. They say, I know I'm still a sinner, but I'm forgiven. I'm a forgiven sinner. And they walk in that freedom. This, by the way, is uh, why First Peter or First Timothy four says that demonic teaching is this. What's demonic teaching? If Satan was going to teach something, teachings of demons. First Timothy four, calling good things evil. Those who forbid marriage and certain foods and drinks. Why is that demonic teaching? Legalism. Why is that demonic teaching? Uh, saying things are bad when they're not bad. Now, God's law says bad things are bad. Adultery, murder, that sort of Those are actually bad, and you should feel guilty for those things. But, but things that are good, why would Satan come along and say, why is that demonic teaching to say that these good things 
or bad. You should, you should not have enjoyment in these things. Why is that demonic teaching? Out of everything Satan could do, why that? Especially in a religious context. Because that's in the context of false teachers and how Satan brings about apostasy. Because of this, the more law, the more you feel condemned about. The more your conscience goes off, because that's Satan's endgame. He, he wants you to be dwelling in guilt. Oh, All these rules, your conscience constantly goes off. And if you constantly have a guilty conscience, you're not going to be able to bear it. And then what's going to happen is this. You're going to have a hard time actually hearing God's word. You're going to have a hard time even coming to church. You're going to have a hard time uh, in anything to do with any legitimate religious practice because you've been beaten up in that context so much. And that's Satan's endgame. That's what he did to Adam and Eve. He came and he said, did God actually say you shall not? And Satan wasn't saying, did he say it or not? He's saying, can you believe God would forbid you from having something? This isn't a good God. You can't trust his word. And that leads you then to find a false escape from this. That is Satan's endgame. Having you bear a guilty conscience so that you can't bear to hear his word. That's his endgame all along. That's why he's the accuser of the brethren. That's why demonic teaching is legalistic. It's because of a guilty conscience. That is exactly what Satan wants to do. That is his endgame. But a cleansed conscience makes all the difference in the world. And so God, knowing the importance of a cleansed conscience, responds to your calling out to him. God, I am guilty. Would you forgive me? And then God responds. He responds with a sign, with a visible sign. He responds not with verbal words, but a visible word. Water washing over your body to say your sins are forgiven. You, you see, God is not silent to your appeal. You're calling out to Him. In your calling on His name, you're asking Him to forgive you for your sins. You're asking Him to remove the guilt of your sin. And God does that both objectively and subjectively for your conscience. He does it objectively alone by the blood of Christ, but then He does it subjectively to have you experience, as it were, forgiveness of sins and washing away of sins in a bath, not for the body, but for the conscience. That is what makes entering this water, this, this baptismal over here, entering into the waters of baptism different than any other bath. It's not because, well, you look dirty today, let's take a bath. I mean, you could do that at home. I trust you have showers and baths at home. And if you don't, at least you have a garden hose, I'm assuming. But the difference between taking a bath at home and entering into the waters of baptism is that only waters of baptism is a bath for your conscience. God is saying to you, I have washed away your sins. And then, then as it were, you come to life. You experientially have power in forgiveness of sins. And I think we've lost this thinking about baptism in our day. We have made it about our works. 
the common belief about baptism, why, why are you getting baptized? We can ask. And the common belief you would hear is, it's my proclamation. It's my declaration. I am declaring what I am doing for the Lord. And yes, it is a public profession. But our confession of faith is right when it says in chapter 29, baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection. You see, rather than it being a declaration of the person being baptized into the audience, it is a declaration of God to the person being baptized. Our baptism is not primarily a declaration, but an appeal this is what First Peter 3 says. We need to think about baptism. Our baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. I am coming to be baptized because I want a good conscience. God, God, I want you to forgive me for my sins. And I want that subjectively verified to my conscience. And God says, here's your sign. That's what baptism is. It is us making an appeal to God and God answering this appeal. Because Christ has been crucified. Because Christ uh, has been buried. And because Christ has been raised from the dead. And is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And so when we get baptized, we go down into the waters and then come back up again. It's a sign of that. God has given us a tangible sign that as our catechism says, as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly Christ's blood has washed away your soul's impurity. It's God responding not with a verbal word, but with a visible word. God gives us a tangible sign that we see and feel where He declares to us, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Because we have had all our sins washed away in the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's answer to our appeal for a good, that is a clean conscience. And... When we talk about it saving, we're talking in the sanctification sense. See, salvation is not just conversion from unbelief to belief, from coming out of a state of condemnation into a state of forgiveness and uh, no longer condemned. Baptism doesn't do that. It doesn't bring you out of a state of condemnation to justification before God. But baptism does have a, a role to play in sanctification, which is part of salvation. And it is washing away your conscience. It's giving your conscience a bath so that you now start to walk in that freedom. Whether or not you have an evil or good conscience makes all the difference in the world. And God uses baptism to do that. And that brings us to the second question. What does baptism do? Which I've already been talking about. It cleanses our conscience and therefore makes the objective reality of our sins being washed away effectual in our experience and practice. Now, how does this sign become effectual and powerful to us? Well, I want you to consider the signs we use all the time. In fact, the signs I've been using throughout this entire sermon. Now, you're confused, right? You're like, well, wait a minute, did I miss something? I've been watching you. I mean, other than I, I, I fell asleep for a couple minutes, or I'll, I'll admit it. But I've been watching you the whole time, 
and you have just been, you know, ranting at me about something. You've been just using words. What signs are you talking about? I'm actually talking about our talking about words. You know that words are signs. Uh, you you look down at the page, uh, you know, even scripture, any book. You, what are you looking at? You're looking at lines and circles and then half circles and that sort of thing. You know what those are called? Those are signs. Words are signs. And I think that if we were to, this would become more obvious to us if we were to look at another language that we didn't understand. It just looks like a bunch of lines and dashes. I'm like, I have no idea what that means. Well, those are all signs. And like the English language, they do actually signify something. Uh, let me give you one example. How do we signify an apple, uh, that piece of fruit? Well, we use five signs. We use an A, we use two P's, we use an L, and we use an E, right? That's how we signify apple. The, the letters A, P, P, L, E are not an apple themselves. Rather, those letters are signs, little symbols used to signify the piece of fruit we call apple. When we are eating an apple, we are not eating the words A, P, P, L, E, right? Those are just signs used to signify an apple. And even those letters combined with their attendant sounds, apple, signify or point to something that's not literally the letters A, P, P, L, E. I'm spelling that right, correct? Yeah, I think I am. It's, I, I chose a word that I think I knew how to spell. So, But I want you to think for a minute, these alphabetical symbols. See, we're using symbols uh, not only on pages, writing it out, but also speaking those symbols in the air to signify something. We do this all the time. But these signs, these symbols can do very powerful things. How does a couple get married? Is it because they dress up in a tux and a wedding dress? Is it because they walk down an aisle to inspiring music? Is it because they give each other rings? Is this how they get married? No. You know how they get married? By saying the words, I do. Those are just signs. The letter I and then D-O combined. Do, I, do. I just spoke symbols. And yet, those signs led to the thing signified. I do take you in marriage led to being married to the point that it's serious sin to forsake that. And then the, the officiant utters the words, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Wait a minute, how do you pronounce? Just use words to make a marriage union. See, words are used to do powerful things, to even wed somebody. It's not the symbols themselves, but rather what those signs signify that has this power to create this marriage relationship. Now, think about later on in marriage, what words can do. Uh, you can crush your spouse's spirit by uttering harsh words. We should never say this, but if someone was to say, I wish I never married you, that can be crushing. But all you did is use some symbols. I wish 
you. However, those symbols are used to create something quite powerful, a crushed spirit, even perhaps for years. Words may be used to create anger. You say something insulting and you can enrage somebody. Uh, words can create fear or panic. Uh, someone can use threatening words to make someone fearful. But you can also do the opposite. The husband can say to his wife, I find you lovely, to be lovely and beautiful. I am so glad I married you. You are an amazing wife. You bring such joy to me. I love you. That can create some power that we call encouragement, motivation. Or we can say to somebody, your work is fantastic. Your work has really blessed me. That brings a, a certain strength and motivation that that person didn't have before to keep going, to keep moving on. It's called encouragement. It says of the Christ in the book of Isaiah that he would be a master in sustaining weary ones with a word. Oh, he can sustain with a word. A Proverbs attests to this power, power of words as well. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. That's quite a bit of power that symbols can create. So signs expressed through symbols on a page or vibrations in the air that articulate the sign can do a lot. It's not the sign themselves, but the meaning that those signs convey. Now when it comes to the Word of God, it does saving things. God's Word, the Bible, brings sinners from spiritual death to spiritual life. The reason why you are no longer on your way to hell and on your way to heaven and you now have a different life that is radically changed from the life you had before Christ is because of words, because of the word of God. Because God has used symbols to tell you about the work of Christ for you. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. But God doesn't just use letters on a page. He also uses visible words. He doesn't just use words to the ears. He uses word to the eyes. And these are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now the difference is that God's word, the Bible, the verbal word, alone converts sinners. Alone brings them from death to life, from unbelief to belief. And that sense saves them. But God uses these other visible words, baptism and the Lord's Supper, to bring about sanctification, to bring about a cleansed conscience. Salvation, again, is more than conversion. It's also sanctification. It's power over sin. And this is the way God uses these verbal words. But it's not the water itself, but what it signifies. Just like it's not the letters of the alphabet in the Bible, but rather the realities to which they point that saves. And so the visible sign does not, does not save in the sense of just by getting dunked, but rather by bringing powerful effects as it pertains to the washing away of our sins, to testify to our conscience, 
It cleanses the conscience upon appealing to God, upon calling out in His name. And that is what brings practical effects when it comes to walking in the freedom that we have. You'll notice that people under the burden of a guilty, accusing conscience uh, will often have a defensive posture as you're talking with them. They'll be like, oh, I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking evil of me, but let me, let me just, even though you're not thinking that way, but let me, let me justify it. Let me tell you why I'm not actually evil. It's like, well, no one's thinking that way of you right now. But it's a, it's a testimony of a guilty conscience. And what's important is that you find freedom not in how others view you, not in how you're treated, not in your ability to do whatever you want without condemnation. Your freedom is found in Christ alone. And God says, here's a sign to help you in that freedom. You are clean. You are cleansed. And so we are to remember even our baptism. It's the blood of Christ alone that cleanses, but baptism testifies to our conscience that we have been cleansed. And this is the way in which Scripture speaks of baptism washing away our sins. Baptism now saves you and is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of the dead. It do, a resurrection of Christ. It does not objectively remove our guilt and stain of sin, but it does subjectively remove the guilt in our conscience. And this is why uh, we can say these things. So we are to remember our baptism. We are to remember this sign. When we have doubts about God's grace and love to us, because our guilty conscience testifies to us when we are struggling with sin. When Satan tempts us to despair and reminds us of the guilt within and says, see what you just did? How can you even be a Christian? How can you be a Christian when you do these things? You need to stop doing this before God will love you. Before you can have assurance. When we feel the weight of our guilt and shame, the filth of our sin, when we feel dirty, when we sin against God, which that's what sin does. We should not sin, but we still do. What do we do about it? Do we look to our own righteousness? Do we look to our own works? Or do we remember what Christ has done as testified to us in our baptism? That our sins have been washed away. That we are to let this powerful sign speak louder than the condemning conscience within. We are to remember that this is our identity, what our baptism tells us, that we are His beloved children who have died with Christ, been buried with Him, and have been raised with Him. So let your baptism, God's visible sign or word, speak louder than the sins you struggle with, Satan's accusations against you and your conscience condemnation. Remember your baptism and walk in the freedom it declares to you so that you love and serve the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> well, Father in heaven, we ask you to help us to view baptism rightly and to remember our baptism and what, what, what it means to us. And what you say to us in it, that 
As your word says, it is an appeal to you for a good conscience. And you have answered that to us. And so, Father, we, we ask that you would remind us of these things again. You know, a lot of us struggle with sin and, and shame and guilt and a guilty conscience. And a lot of it has come out of just our own sin. Uh, though Others putting us under the law and condemning us. And may we find freedom in Christ and in how you speak to us through this visible word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.